The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sport Box. Here are your headlines. Stocks in Asia sit mostly in the red at the start of the holiday week, but Wall Street looks set to end the decade with a bang. The S&P 500 up almost 190% since 2009. China will cut import tariffs on a range of products from the 1st of January. While both President Trump and Xi Jinping say the phase one trade deal will be signed soon. But tensions between the U.S., Germany and Russia run high. Berlin and Moscow criticize sanctions against the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, accusing Washington of interfering in internal affairs. And Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi defends a new citizenship law following days of mass demonstrations and deadly clashes with the police over the legislation. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. As Karen mentioned there in the headlines, we are rounding out the decade with the S&P set to end with a bang. This benchmark index is set to gain nearly 200% over the course of the decade, about 190% as it stands. So quite a remarkable run. Now, interesting within the S&P 500 in terms of what corporates have actually been doing over that period. Well, they've been very, very active in the way of share buybacks and dividends returning nearly $13 trillion worth of, uh, of returns via those dividends and share buybacks. So a big part of the story for the, the uh, S&P 500 over the last 10 years or so. Let's take a look at the other major indices in the U.S. Uh, the Dow this decade, uh, looking at how that index has performed also a very strong run for the Dow, up about 170%. So not quite as strong as the run we've seen for the S&P 500, but very strong nevertheless. And this decade, of course, marked by the longest economic expansion in a his- on record, albeit growth has been subdued for the United States. We've also seen persistently low interest rates, subdued inflation, uh, and low unemployment. So all of these economic factors supporting equity markets, and it's been a very, very strong run indeed. Let's take a look at the heavy Nasdaq, which has also been a real a star performer over the last decade or so. You can see uh, over the last uh, couple of years in particular, this index now trading around a 89.24, which marks a more than 290% increase from where we stood 10 years ago. So massive run for the Nasdaq. Of course, uh, this year has seen a number of mega deals come to market in the IPO space. We will be discussing those throughout the show. But I just want to set the scene as we get into the final trading days of the decade that we are coming off of a very strong year for U.S. equities. Karen. Uh, Juliana, well, let's talk about one of the reasons why as we close out the year. China plans to reduce tariffs on more than 850 goods as it looks to boost imports in the coming year. According to the finance ministry, Beijing will lower the rates for goods such as diabetes drugs, avocados and frozen pork to help address shortages caused by the swine disease. It will also slash duties on some semiconductors to zero from the 1st of January. This is the second largest economy faces slowing growth and trade tensions with the U.S. President Donald Trump says progress has been made in the so-called phase one trade deal after a phone call with President Xi on Friday. 
The U.S. leader tweeted that he had a, quote, good conversation with his counterpart and that a formal signing of the agreement is being arranged. China's Xinhua News Agency has reported that during the talks, the Chinese leader expressed deep concerns about the, quote, negative words and deeds of the U.S. on the country's political affairs. President Trump struck a positive note about trade talk advances in an address to young conservatives over the weekend. We also took the toughest ever action against China. And as a result, we just achieved a breakthrough on the trade deal and we'll be signing it very shortly. They're already buying billions and billions of dollars of products, agricultural products. Fahad Kamal joins us, Chief Market Strategist at Climewood Hambros. Fahad, I want to ask you about how far we've travelled on markets around a phase one trade deal. We thought we'd travelled a long way and then we've just kept on travelling a little bit further as the language has remained positive from both the leaders of the US and China. What do you make of the, the market euphoria or enthusiasm for, for a trade deal? Look, I mean, the market's, you know, been alternatively probably over bullish on trade sentiment and then alternatively oversold on trade sentiment, depending on time of year. I mean, a few months ago when I was actually on your show, it was quite the opposite sentiment. You know, we expected this whole thing to fall apart. This wasn't going to happen. So it's been volatile. But, I mean, you know, we our view has always been the deal would happen simply because the, there's, it's a win-win for everyone, um, particularly given the U.S. election next year and this being, you know, the, probably one of the biggest threats to the, uh, to the incumbent administration in the U.S. really expect there to be some sort of resolution. Win-win is great news around, around at this point, but what about in 2020 as we count down to that presidential election? Will we see the rhetoric start to increase again because China has been such a, a good punching bag in many ways for, for Trump and going into an election? It might be another useful one again. So what do you make of his strategy come 2020 where he might try and land a few more blows on China? Well, look, I think that, you know, the, the president has a number of punching bags so he can he can go to, you know, there's there's no shortage there. So um, I think that given the fact that he's got a number of, as you know, sort of issues at, at, at the moment, obviously impeachment being the most immediate one, but there's others. There's undeniably a huge domestic um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, galvanization of, of uh, opposition towards him as we go into the into the election. So I think that really incentivizes the administration to at least make sure the economy keeps humming along. The biggest threat to the economy is this trade issue. I think that that puts, makes it a very strong case for it to be resolved, or at least, at the very least, continue simmering as it has been in a positive way. You make the point that the most critical issue for the economy is this trade issue. So let's just uh, separate the impact on markets and the impact on businesses, which obviously are a huge part of what drives the economy. Even though we've seen this euphoric reaction in markets, do you think that a phase one agreement is going to be enough to trigger a new wave of business investment, which ultimately is what is going to you know, determine uh, where the cycle goes next? Yeah, look, in terms of general capex and, and sort of, you know, business um, investment, it's it's a much bigger question than just simply the trade war, right? Obviously, that's sort of an immediate headwind, and, and to some degree, we expect that to be resolved and all the rest of it. But the real sort of problem really across the developing, a developed world rather over the last decade has been has been actually a lack of aggregate demand in general. Got nothing to do with the trade war, it's just got to do with the fact that there's very aging, poor demographics and um, and very little productivity. Uh, that picture is not going to change and to the degree there's probably going to be excess supply of capital with with you know with a limited amount of productive you know utilization of that that's not going to change and so what does that mean essentially low but positive returns 
going forward. So in terms of what assets may perform in 2020 on the back of that view that even if we do have resolution on the U.S.-China trade front, we still have all these headwinds, these fundamental headwinds that you just described. Does this set up a supportive environment for equities? Yeah, look, I mean, there's one of the things about this, you know, you mentioned this decade, we're sort of a decade of, of huge gains, you know, 11 years almost on the bull run. One of the big things that has propelled it, at least for the last, you know, sort of number of years, is the fact that there is no alternative. I mean, look across the asset class uh, sort of landscape, and you eventually end up coming around to equities as being the best place to be. There's really no um, denying that, no getting away from that, and that continues into 2020. Can I ask you uh, about what we've seen uh, in terms of performance year to date, very strong performances, but also on the volume. I thought it was quite amazing the last couple of sessions. Very strong volume. So coming up to year end, there's a whole lot of portfolio shuffling or closing out of positions, but it just means transactions have been very high. And we saw that Friday session in particular. What do you make of that action? Is it uh, investors like yourself getting more involved in the stock market? Because I noticed that uh, recently you also increased your allocation to US equities. Is that what's going on? People leaning into risk assets more? Well, probably, I mean, last few days probably there was also the quadruple um, uh, witching uh, factor which which may have affected uh, vol you know volume slightly more but but yeah look people are getting in i mean i think that one of the big risks uh, this year and i think we were also scarred from december 2018 where we were all sort of hesitant sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens but i think as the global economy undeniably has begun to stabilize from where it was i mean you know there was a period sort of late summer where we thought okay look this thing might roll over but it hasn't um, and that has essentially been the catalyst for us to to increase our risk allocations similarly i'm sure others as well um, yeah and as we go into this december you know it's quite ironic that volumes are spiking because people are buying in more as opposed to selling more which was the which was the case last year but nonetheless um, yeah probably we, we we are we are absolutely buying in we we're, we're risk on um, not necessarily because we think that you know that this is just the most supportive environment ever for equities but as i said you know, we have capital to deploy, and where else are you going mm. to deploy it in a more meaningful way? Now, as Karen highlighted, specifically, you guys have increased your allocation to U.S. equities, mm. but uh, multiples there, if you look at valuations, are actually more elevated relative to other regions. So why is the valuation case uh, compelling enough to get your, you know, more more money in that region when you can get better value elsewhere? Yeah, look, that's such a great point, and, and you're right, and believe me, you know, the, the, the valuation, the, the elevated valuation in the U.S. have been a, um, you know, have been one of the one of the reasons essentially not not to get them. But there's a number of factors that matter in markets beyond just valuation. Right, it's a great place to start. But there's been huge momentum in the U.S. equity market, obviously, you know, and, and that's been one factor. The second thing is can't really compare the U.S. equity market to other regions simply because the sector composition is so different. Particularly, obviously, the big tech behemoths at the very top. So, you know, you and you compare that to, let's say, the FTSE 100 or something in you know, a very different sector composition. You would not pay those valuations for more old world companies. Um, so we're more comfortable with that in the U.S. But yes. Don't don't get me wrong. That you know the, the valuations are elevated, and um, we're ex accepting that risk as we go in. So when we swing focus uh, across to European markets, so there has been uh, a sort of catch up that's played out over the course of this year. Very strong performances in the United States, but going with that market performance has been European markets. It's not always been the case. It's not often that we sit around this set. We talk about uh, well, Europe has done in context with the United States. So what happened this year? Why was it such a supportive backdrop for European markets? 
God, you know, you're right. We don't, we don't nearly sit around talking about Europe enough. But yes, what a year! Once in a I mean, yeah, God. <laughs> um, a couple of things, right? So obviously, we were talking about Europe start having a great year from really a bombed out valuation position, right? It was pretty cheap at the beginning of this year. So as you were saying, you know, we there is a dearth of of sort of value. Um, around the world, across asset classes, and European equities are one of the places that this year was was good value. So that that's where it started, and you know when you are cheap, you, you know the probability of you sort of having a good year obviously increases. So there was that also. Not I mean, that it's worked in the past. No, you're right, and 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 you, you know, and that's the thing, which is why valuation is just a place to begin a conversation rather than 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 end it. Um, but of course, you've had a very supportive environment in terms of uh, monetary policy continuing. Thing, you know, and, and then on top, finally on top of that, that relative value case in Europe has been stronger. Than, you know, I mean, you're literally looking at negative yields for bonds, etc. But yeah, it's been a great bounce back. I mean, the DAX alone, you know, obviously trade uh, tailwinds have helped, um, particularly given the export complex. But no, it's been a great year. You know, and, and we um, we'll see. I mean, you're right. We don't talk. Uh, if we don't get the opportunity often enough, so we should be happy about it this right. year. Thirty percent on the DAX, uh, and if you look at uh, the Italian market, 31% are the best performers. Well, the Greek market is the best performing yes. market in Europe, so, so take that, and if you think about it, actually, within the Greek market, you have Piraeus Bank, for example, mm. you know, I mean, we're talking about what would have been considered, you know, toxic beyond, uh, you know, belief a few years ago, up 250% on the year or something. So, so yeah, um, valuation, you know, matters, right? With some, at some point, some things are just too cheap to ignore. Yep, 250% uh, is uh, not a bad return for one year, Fahad. You're staying with us. Thank you very much. Uh, meantime, the Pentagon is urging local companies to open up their 5G technology development in order to help the U.S. compete with Huawei, according to a Financial Times report. The paper spoke with the head of research and development at the Defense Department and uh, said that she would like to make the technology open source in order to more quickly create an American alternative. Washington had received well over 100 license requests to sell to the Chinese tech giant this year, even after Huawei had been blacklisted over national security concerns. Meanwhile, Italy's industry minister Stefano Patrulinelli would like his country to be the latest U.S. ally to defy the Huawei blacklist. The member of the ruling five-star movement has told local newspaper La Stampa that the tech giant should be allowed a role in 5G rollout as national security guarantees have already been made. His comments came after a parliamentary committee in Rome attempted to pass legislation to block the company. We've got some uh, news crossing from Credit Suisse and one of the more exciting twists and turns in a corporate news story this year has been around the spy scandal at the Swiss bank. So more developments as uh, no doubt the bank tries to close the, the chapter on this one as we also in 2019. The company now is saying that Pierre-Olivier Bouet has been decided to uh, have terminated his employment agreement for cause. So the board taking very strong measures today. They've said that a new investigation by the law firm Homberger did not find any indication that the CEO, Tijan TM, or any other executives or board members had any knowledge of the observation of uh, another member, and this is uh, Peter Gorky. This uh, has been quite an interesting one, where it wasn't just Iqbal Khan who left and went to UBS who was monitored. It seems like there may have been 
others at the firm who are monitored, and this has been part of another investigation. I read one media report today saying, is there anyone not under investigation well, at Credit Suisse? It also raises the question, not only is, is there anybody else who's been under investigation, but also around governance, the fact that the board has maintained throughout these uh, different stories that uh, you know key members were unaware of these investigations going on. So I think that you know the, the chief question is, uh, is that a structure that is um, you know acceptable to markets if you do yes. have a board that is is unaware of these investigations or it raises the question were they actually aware? under pressure do you tell the truth do you fudge tell white lies or fully lie that's the question i think when investigators come knocking credit Suisse has gone on to say during uh, vic bakan investigation responsible individuals did not respond truthfully when asked about any additional observations and did not disclose the observation of peter corke just a reminder as to who this man is uh, he's been a long time lieutenant of the chief executive at tijan tm so uh, he's obviously clearly uh, someone of interest at the organization credit swiss says uh, the investigation also concluded that the former executive pierre oliver bure issued the mandate to have peter corke put under observation so it seems as though it wasn't just iqbal khan here and Credit Suisse also going on to say that they confirmed that Peter Gorka, who was a member of the executive board at the time, was placed under observation by a third-party firm on behalf of Credit Suisse for a period of several days in February 2019. So the investigators, sounds like they were busier than the private bank in Switzerland. Indeed. Well, we'll keep an eye on Credit Suisse's share price reaction as we approach the European Open in just about 45 minutes' time. For now, though, let's take a look at where Wall Street closed out the week. Last week, we saw stocks advance toward fresh record highs. The Nasdaq, the S&P 500, and the Dow all ending in positive territory on Friday. Sentiment supported by some comments from President Trump around the state of U.S.-China trade relations. We also got to a final reading of Q3 GDP in the U.S., which showed that the economy expanded to that was up from 2% in the quarter previous. So altogether uh, providing some uh, some support for investor sentiment. And closing out the week higher as well, the Dow about 1.1% higher, the S&P up 1.6%, and the NASDAQ, the key outperformer last week, that tech-heavy index gained about 2.2%, the best weekly performance since August. So quite a strong run in the lead-up to the new year for U.S. markets. Let's take a look at the overnight session, where things stand in Asia. A little bit more of a mixed picture coming through here. The Nikkei 225 over in Japan essentially flat on the uh, on the day. Uh, the Hang Seng also essentially flat. But over in China, the Shanghai Composite, the mainland index, that one is down about 1.4%. The Shenzhen also down nearly 2%. And overnight, uh, over the weekend, we got uh, some, com- some, some fresh news out of China that they will uh, be lowering tariffs on about 850 U.S. imports starting January 1st, including frozen pork. Of course, they've been facing a massive shortage around uh, around pork, which has driven up pork prices in China. Uh, But investors are not quite uh, welcoming that news enough to offset uh, the negative sentiment passing through Chinese markets as we close out the year. Let's take a look at opening calls for Europe. Last week, also a strong week for Europe. In addition to Wall Street, we saw the stock 600 gain about 1.6%. Now this morning, we're looking at a very muted start to trade in the final week of the year. The FTSE, the DAX, the CAC, and the FTSE MIB all indicating a weaker start, but very, very marginal uh, losses coming through for European markets. Karen. Juliana, thank you. Let's uh, squeeze in a quick break. Coming up on the show, problems in the pipeline. Fresh cracks emerge between the US and Germany over Nord Stream gas. We take a closer look after the break. And just a reminder, if you can't get enough of the school box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. 
I'll be commuting this week, but you can still uh, tune in and have a listen. Head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz has accused the U.S. of, quote, serious interference in its domestic affairs. This after President Trump imposed sanctions on companies constructing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The €9.5 billion Euro pipeline has raised concerns in the U.S. and Europe as it would supply gas directly from Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea, bypassing Ukraine. Russia insists it will press ahead with the pipeline. However, Nord Stream's main contractors, All Seas, says it has suspended work following the sanctions. Uh, you raised a point, uh, what is Nord Stream 2, as we were just debating uh, this project. And I think the reality is most people now know the name because of uh, the focus that President Trump put on this gas pipeline project when he was at NATO headquarters talking about why are we effectively trying to step in here and defend the Europeans when you have this huge pipeline deal, huge contract with the Russians that is uh, shoring up all of your energy requirements or a big chunk of your energy requirements. So what is uh, the logic behind this deal? That said, it progresses and now the sanctions will go into place. And I think the, I mean, ultimately, President Trump has spoken out numerous times against this deal. He doesn't want Europe becoming overly reliant, Germany becoming overly reliant on Russia as their source of gas. And I think it's interesting to see that the Europeans, you mentioned Olaf Scholz, straight out the back there, uh, hitting out really strongly against this kind of interference from the U.S. in European matters. And you can't ignore that this comes, you know, this is a Nord a Nord 2 specific issue, but you can't ignore the fact that this comes at a time when We're all waiting with bated breath to see whether tensions between the U.S. and Berlin and the U.S. and Europe more broadly, you know, if if those tensions escalate in 2020. And not to mention Ukraine being somewhat of an election issue, given the impeachment process that continues on the Hill. The fact that there seemed to be this conversation that transpired between President Trump and uh, the head of Ukraine. And uh, some of that involved uh, some form of withholding of monies that was required by Ukraine at this point. And if you think about what is necessary to the fortunes Mm -hmm. of the Ukrainians, it is uh, having fairly significant energy pipeline deal. So a move to bypass this country and provide gas from Russia directly to Europe would be an issue to the fortunes of Ukraine. Just want to push on to what the sanctions actually involve. 60 days now to identify individual companies and people providing services to the construction of this pipeline. So visas would be revoked if uh, people are participating in the pipeline project. Also, uh, property that uh, may be owned by these individuals could also be impacted as well. So they would have 30 days to unwind uh, some of these activities or all the properties. So uh, you can see it's uh, quite a high pressure cooker environment for these people involved in the project. Uh, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, look, um, I think, you know, that regardless of the little political football that's being played right now, what's undeniable is that, you know, which is something shocking. We would never have expected at the beginning of the decade this huge fracturing that's taken place between the U.S. and Europe in, in the geopolitical sphere, right? And I think that's the, really the bigger takeaway. I mean, as you go into the next decade, we are really looking at an environment where NATO is less effective, where the, the U.S.-European co- cooperation is 
broken, if fraying, if not broken. Um, and what does that really mean for the wider world? Uh, it, it's it's a shocking development, really, you know, and um, and really does put the world at a more dangerous uh, part, not just in terms of this specific gas pipeline, but if you think about the rules-based order and the, the international security environment that we've all been huge beneficiaries of for the last, you know, since the Second World War, that you know, for the first time ever, experts would say, is genuinely fraying. And this is one one example of that. The links to the White House to an election year questions the power of President Trump and whether he is the right commander-in-chief at this point for the Americans mm. and whether the standing of Americans has been lessened because of President Trump. And that was some of the bickering that took place at least over the weekend by the Democrats. They raised the conversation that had happened on this side of the pond uh, mm. recently that where there was sort of laughing, giggling around a circle of, uh, of leaders from Trudeau in Canada, to Boris Johnson here, and uh, Ma- Macron in France, mm-hmm. but uh, of the Netherlands, and effectively uh, Princess having, Anne as well, right? Having yeah. a having a chuckle yeah. at President Trump's expense, and you've got to say, if it were a different president, apparently he doesn't like that. He doesn't like it. <laughs> I don't think many people would like it, right? But if uh, the American leader had more force at this point, would there be an ability to have a conversation with the Germans and the Russians? To, to look at counterweight measures. Would they be on the page that this is a good deal because the Russians are then entwined with the Europeans, so it is a counterweight against some geopolitical tension? Or is it the opposite, where you would have more influence as an American leader to say, I think you should end this pipeline deal. It's not in the interests of NATO alliance. Yeah, no, sorry, but you know, but uh, look, uh, of course, there's no doubt about the fact that the, that the US, current US president is tremendously divisive, has alienated a lot of the U.S.'s traditional allies. Um, you know, just, I mean, the Iran, the Iran, uh, you know, issue that happened sort of earlier this year and last year was, was I thought, you know, probably one of the most significant, you know, it did obviously didn't get a lot of press. It doesn't really affect markets. Iran's a relatively small economy and no financial markets to speak of, but hugely important in terms of what it meant. And, you know, this is just initial ramifications of a world that's um, becoming more, uh, more fragmented and, and therefore more dangerous. We just uh, have some fresh comments from Novak, Russia's uh, energy minister, just to add into you know his take on the Nord Stream 2 situation. He says he hopes that Nord Stream 2 will be completed on time. He's speaking right now on RBC TV. So he's weighing in on what's going on there. One other thing I would add, and just away from the political landscape here, is the, the climate aspect. And we've mm. seen climate activists in Germany enter the mix and uh, already a protest against a part of Nord Stream 2. They were protesting. Uh, on uh, part of the pipeline there. So it's not just a political issue, but it's part of the wider energy debate as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.